Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I made the comment, I was like, I don't think a lot of this is really engineering focused, right? It doesn't seem super relevant to the engineering team. And he kind of just paused and looked at me and was like, that is your job. It doesn't matter if it's engineering or not. You need to fix these problems. And I think it was a mindset shift for me. And it was really helpful feedback. But I think it kind of framed that there's a bunch of seams in an organization. It doesn't matter whether they're engineering or not. But I really need to look for those seams and those opportunities and make sure they're addressed, whether that's in my job description or not. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Samir Naik, head of engineering core products at Plaid joins us to share the story of how Plaid's evolved over the last 10 years and how he's been able to evolve his own career within Plaid throughout their massive growth. We also cover topics like some of the signs or signals that indicate the phase of the business is changing, how far you can push certain org models or phases, sequencing functions, growing out of elements of your engineering culture, and what it was like opening up a new office and why they chose Salt Lake City. Shout out to the Mountain West. Let me introduce you to Samir. Samir oversees a cross-functional team of product managers, engineers, designers, and marketers building and scaling Plaid's core APIs. He was the first external engineering manager hire at Plaid and has been instrumental in building Plaid's engineering function from the ground up. Previously, Samir led teams at Dropbox, Zynga, and Disney. It is a rare opportunity to look at both the growth of a company and then simultaneously understand how someone's career can change and evolve alongside the rapid growth of that company. This was such a fun retrospective on Samir's experience and evolution at Plaid. Enjoy our conversation with Samir Naik. So first off, Samir, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks. Super excited to, to join you guys. I've been definitely binge listening to the podcast recently, so excited to add to the conversation. Absolutely. So to set a little bit of context for our conversation, there's sort of two main themes we wanted to get into. But just to set some of that context, I know that Jean-Denis Grez sent out a tweet right around the Super Bowl time, said nearly half a million people signed up for a new fintech app on Plaid during the Super Bowl. So that sort of indicates that was a pretty big moment for Plaid and has been a marker that Plaid has evolved a lot over the last 10 years. The other side of this is you were also the first external engineering manager hired at Plaid way back when. So your role has evolved extensively within Plaid as well. And so what we're excited to do is really to spend some time deconstructing both of those evolutions, yours and Plaid's. And so to dive in a little bit more to that story, do you remember what it was like when you first joined Plaid, what was that moment like when you first got introduced? What was Plaid's focus then? And why was the organization really ready to hire you at that moment? Yeah, so I joined Plaid in mid-2017 and the company was founded in, in sort of late 2012. And 
I think my, my actually first introduction to Plaid was in 2013 when I'd started my own startup and we shared an investor with Plaid. So we were two people in the homebrew offices and Zach and William, the founders of Plaid, were also just starting off also a homebrew portfolio company. So had kind of heard of them then and gotten to see Zach and William at a ton of founder events and recruiting events and really just enjoyed them as people and could tell they were super hardworking, super humble. So that was my first introduction to Plaid. Sort of fast forward, our, our startup didn't do as well as Plaid, obviously, and ended up at Dropbox where I was working for John Denis. And so sort of two roads kind of led me to Plaid in 2017. But the stage sort of in between 2012 and 2017, I think Plaid had gone through a lot of that early stage, trying to find product market fit, really just concentrating on building a great product. And, and they were starting to get to this transition period of needing to also think about building a great company after they got to product market fit. And so I, I sort of joined at, at that phase where the company still was very focused and very kind of single track. And if you aren't familiar with Plaid, the product that we provide is an API for developers to make it really easy for developers to connect an end user's financial account to their applications. And so the way we do that is by making one single integration point that allows developers to access thousands and thousands of banks. So at that point, Plaid's product market fit was really just how quickly can you add new banks and new financial institutions to the platform and, and how high quality can you make those integrations. So very much still focused on that, but starting to see signs of product market fit and customer pull, which indicated that the team needed to scale. And, and so the team had gotten to about 30 engineers. Prior to Jean-Denis joining, they were all reporting to the CTO and starting to see some of the issues of, of that scaling, of <laughs> course. And so, you know, they were at the stage where really starting to think about, like, how do we build out the engineering team and do that in a sustainable way? And just like any early company, you have engineers that are going to be asked to step up and become managers just out of necessity. And so there's a few people that had done that, some that wanted to stay as managers, some that wanted to get back to IC work, but really needed to like start looking at sort of an external bench of managers as well. And then at that stage, you know, it's really important. I think every hire is really important, but certainly you can mess up a lot as if you bring in the wrong leadership at that stage. And I know that the search for the head of engineering for Jean-Denis took a, a really long time and they, they found a perfect candidate. And I think for the first EM hires, it was a similar thing. So I think one, having been a little bit of a de-risk quantity, having known the founders and Jean-Denis made me a known quantity, but also I think they were looking for somebody that could sort of balance the early startup culture with the needs of a scaling engineering team in the next year or two. And I had kind of just uniquely been in both of those positions in the last couple of years. And so I think that that sort of was, for me, it was really exciting. I'd never worked at that stage of hyper growth. And I, I found that really exciting, as well as the mission of unlocking financial freedom for everyone. So all those things just came together and it just felt like a very obvious fit. I think it's really interesting to sort of see the exemplification of like that lily pad effect of the different tech ecosystems and how your involvement in one area and connecting with different founders of different companies also then you never know how for far in advance in your career that opens up opportunities. And then it's also really cool to, for you to narrate sort of the thought process in the moment for why at that time you're a really good fit for Plaid, which I thought was really interesting. Can you give us a quick zoom out to now? What's your role now at Plaid? Can you share a little bit more about context around that? Yeah, so, so I oversee our core business. So when I started at Plaid, I was first engineering manager and, and managed several teams. And then as the company grew, managed several engineering orgs, but it was very much engineering focused. The biggest difference between my role then and now is 
really kind of overseeing our core products as a business. So inclusive of engineering, but also working really closely with product and product marketing and our go-to-market teams to ensure that our business is growing the way we want it for years and years. So it's been definitely a mindset shift for me, you know, not just thinking about the engineering side of the house and getting to really like think about PNL and our business as a business. And it's been uh, really rewarding, tons of learning every day. In this conversation, I think we're going to get a little liminal and we're going to kind of phase back and forth between that mindset shift and how you changed or, or evolved your skill set within your career at Plaid. But we also want to kind of understand how Plaid's evolved and then how you evolved with that. I think liminal is a beautiful word. So I wanted to, that was my $10 word I wanted to throw out for the episode today. So when you're looking at Plaid over the last few years, what would you say are some of the distinct phases or evolutions over the time that have stood out to you? And I was wondering maybe if we could distill a couple of those distinct phases and any insights that stood out to you over that evolution. Yeah, I think about Plaid really in three phases. So phase one, and I'll go through the phases kind of quickly, but phase one, just getting to product market fit. So that was sort of the 2013 to 2017 phase. Phase two is after having achieved product market fit, starting to scale and starting to hit some of these scaling challenges where you're getting more pull from customers than the team can really keep up with. And then phase three is that the company really is scaled pretty significantly, multiple independent business lines that are each growing quickly. And you really need to start figuring out how you scale velocity when there's so many things going on. And you're also at the point where you haven't yet made a ton of investments in, in platforms and you really need to start doing that in order to gain that velocity. So Across those three phases, there's some interesting sort of ins and outs of how you think about operational maturity, technical maturity, and, and culture. So in phase one, when you're in, just in that like product market fit phase, I think Plaid in particular was a lot about just what is the next problem in front of us and, and how do we get to product market fit very quickly. So the, the stage was the founders were engineers, the product was for engineers. So it really meant that like the early team was very engineering first. And because of the product was really for people like themselves. Like I think there was just a lot of inherent empathy for customers. And so what that enabled us to do at that stage and as before I joined, but it was really that you could have a small team that was not very functionally driven. It was really sort of everybody focused on everything. Everybody was fixing bugs, everybody was shipping features, everybody was handling support. So you didn't need a ton of operational maturity. There was not a lot of formal structure to the teams. As an example, we didn't really even have teams until there was 40 engineers. Everything was just organized around projects. And so what that looked like was you would basically have a global stack rank of projects every quarter and say like, these are the highest ROI projects and move down the list and draw a cut line. And then once you were done shipping a project, engineers would go their separate ways and move on to the next most impactful projects. So you were always sure you were working on the most important thing at any one time. And then you put in some really lightweight structures on top of that to make sure that the people management side work. So we had a very light matrix structure where every IC would be working with a manager on the project, but also a stable people manager. But, you know, the team size is small enough that everybody has context on, on what's going on and, and it keeps communication and organizational overhead really low. You know, technical maturity at that stage is also sort of a side effect. You know, you know, I think you're really just trying to solve problems and you may end up solving a very hard technical problem and thinking about it in a forward-looking way, but really that's not the goal. The goal is to ship impact quickly and solve the needs for customers as quickly as you can. And the ecosystem is also evolving quickly and customer needs in it are evolving. So 
even if you did think about technical maturity in a forward-looking way, you'd probably be wrong. So uh, you generally, <laughs> at that stage, are not doing that much. Culture, though, you know, I think is very important and intentional. I wouldn't say Platt sat down ahead of time and thought about this is the culture we want. But, you know, the first five or 10 people in a company are really going to be the ones that set the culture with, with their actions. And I know the founders, Zach and William, really thought carefully about that. So hiring the right people really trumped the speed of hiring at that stage. And impact was super, super important. People that were really going to prioritize business impact and customer impact over, over anything. And also really wanted people that were comfortable operating with just high levels of ambiguity. Every day was sort of different. Every month was sort of different. So those are some of the big things that really stand out in phase one. Phase two is really like Plaid had achieved product market fit. And this is where organizational maturity starts to become more of a need. So this stage is about 150 engineers when I think we really re reach product market, market fit or 150 total. So it's no longer really possible for anyone to have like complete context on what's going on. Customer demand is really growing. So it doesn't really scale to have everybody thinking about everything. You need to start coming up with interfaces within your company to scalably meet the, the demands of customers. And so this is where we started introducing product-oriented teams. So teams that had longer running missions based on the needs for their products. And these teams then set interfaces with the rest of the org in terms of what they owned, how to have information flowing in and out, like what their KPIs were. And so that, that sort of helped solve the Dunbar's number problem and scope down the number of sort of team interfaces you have to think about. You also, at this point, you're starting to grow out functions. So it's not just an engineering-led org. There's product that's growing out, design is growing out, sales is growing out. And this is like meeting the needs of customers, right? So, so you start to have functions that are good at doing some of these things versus everybody just trying to cover the, their bases. Can I ask a follow-up question about that really quickly? Yeah. The question is about like sequencing for building out the early stages of some of those functions. So was it like a certain customer needed increased reliability and so then you had to build out a team that was more geared towards infrastructure and stability? Or like how did you assess some of the sequencing for some of the early stages of those functions? Yeah, I think it was very much based on how you wanted to scale the, the people that were doing those roles. And so early days, you know, the founders were in all the sales conversations, they were in all the conversations with banks. At a certain point, you want to find expertise in doing those things. And so I think, especially on the bank side, I think dealing with sort of a new way of permissioning consumer data, and I think it was really important to have folks that had worked with banks before and could sort of speak bank speak, bank talk, but also <laughs> understand what we were trying to do and what consumers wanted to do with their data. So that, that was one thing is just like having really industry specific expertise that could accelerate us. And then on the other functions, I think it was kind of similar. It was like, we could get pretty far on the engineering side, thinking about product just through inherent empathy, but you start to see, especially in a B2B product, like many different needs across different verticals. And so as a you know product function, you want somebody to come in and think about customer segmentation and platform maturity and, and publishing platform roadmaps and stuff like that. And that's generally not all the things that engineers like to do. So again, it was like, how do we scale our capabilities? And, and I would say that's true on the end side too, as we were adding engineers for early part, you can say, let's hire a generalist because we don't exactly know where our hotspots are going to be. But at that stage, we were also saying like, okay, we want to build a mobile SDK. We need to find experts there. So that's about the stage when we started thinking about mm -hmm. like domain and functional expertise. I have a question about the, the first phase. In that phase, the team is small. 
and you mentioned getting context of everything is a lot more easier. So uh, a question around that is that at that time, do you have a product dedicated roles or project management dedicated roles to help facilitating the communication and collaboration? In the early stage, we really didn't. We relied a lot on engineering managers. So we had very lightweight tooling, right? We used Google Sheets very heavily and our roadmap was essentially one big sheet of all the project ideas. And we would ask folks to do check-ins on that sheet, but a lot of the process was driven by engineering managers. And so the the way we kind of thought about it was like engineering, you know, as we were building out functions, engineering is always going to be the biggest function and sometimes hits the bleeding edge of needs on on tools or on HR or recruiting. And, And so generally as an eng management team, we'd get together and say like, what are the biggest burning problems, not just on engineering, but across the company? And are there one or two things we can take on as a team every quarter just to make that better? So it was very incremental. We knew we weren't the right people to do this forever, but it was, I think for EMs generally enjoy a little bit of process and a little bit of optimizing process. So so we were able to find folks that could kind of do that as a stand-in basis for, for a couple of years, actually. So the EM is actually a combination of heroes and actual engineering manager, but also a product and project manager as well. Yeah, there's a lot of hats at that, at that stage. <laughs> I, I also love the visualization of a giant master sheet of all of the, the priorities of the projects. It reminds me, our COO, Kyle, he's taught me everything I know about project management. And one of the quotes he introduced me to was, the best project management tool is the one you use. So in that case, like, Google Sheets, if it's working and if it's the tool, that's great. We, we tried, yeah, we tried several other things. We always came back to Sheets. So <laughs> kudos to Sheets. Another related question in the phase one is that what's the composition of the team in terms of seniority? Do you optimize for more senior experienced engineers to come in at that stage? Yeah, I think it's a good question. We, we ended up with not a super senior team. I think it was one of the things that I always would talk about as kind of, for better or worse, there wasn't a ton of like staff level or principal level engineers that had joined at that stage. A lot of the people that joined were earlier career or mid-career that wanted to take a bigger risk and be part of a hyper growth phase company. And for whatever reason, I think risk takers are fine with without liquidity for a while. And I think generally your more senior engineers are at larger companies where there's liquidity. So that was one thing that we just found is like in the market when we would talk to candidates, there weren't the sort of Venn diagram between senior engineers and senior engineers that want to take a, a bigger risk on an early stage company is pretty low. But at the same time, I think we we wanted to find folks that were really passionate, really willing to take risks, but also give them the benefits of having high ownership and taking on larger areas than than they might at a bigger company. And so it's kind of a a give and get, right? If you're going to take that risk, it's nice to have really a lot of upside in terms of the types of projects you can take on and how quickly you can grow your career. And we very much saw that. I think there's folks that graduated maybe one or two years out of college that are now architecture leads at Plaid because they've been able to scale with the company and, and take on larger and larger projects. And, and you wouldn't really have that opportunity at a larger company. I was about to jump in and ask, like, this is similar to your story, but I'm, I'm withholding that question, Samir, so much right now. But just to complete the picture of some of the evolution story, I guess now it would be sort of categorized as phase three. What does that look like now? Bring us into that a little bit. Yeah, so going from phase two to phase three, you start to see the ecosystem changing and the ecosystem is kind of pulling you into phase three. So phase two is very much like still single product, single type of customer. But as we've matured, we've added a ton of different lines of business. So 
now we have a domestic and international business. We have products that are facing developers, products that are facing consumers, products that are facing banks. We have sort of mature flagship products and then a bunch of new products in the pipeline. So the product line is becoming pretty vast. At the same time, customers are becoming really mature. A lot of our customers, you mentioned the Super Bowl, a lot of our customers have become multi-billion dollar companies. FinTech as a space is growing really quickly. So it just means that we have to mature as a company. And, and so we need to start thinking about our platform and our products on a multi-year time frame because so many customers' businesses are really depending on what we're doing. Changes are very disruptive for them. And the banking ecosystem itself is changing quite rapidly with banks rolling out OAuth. So we're at this phase where we really need to start operating our business in terms of independent business units that can understand the change of the ecosystem and how we sort of manage through that change, but also move really quickly. And so that also leads us to a pretty heavy investment in platforms this year in order to allow our business units to still be independent, but not be bottlenecked on internal infrastructure. Was it clear in the moment, the changes of the business? Was there ever a delineated time where it's like, oh, we're moving to phase two? Or has it been just all in hindsight, putting it all together, seeing the phase changes? Actually, I I think anyone that says they did all this intentionally and, and designed it all up front is probably probably lying. But no, I think of organizational maturity is really like a lagging indicator of your success as a business and, and not the other way around. In phase one, say we, we're going to set up teams and business units in, in like the expectation of success. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. And technical maturity is kind of the same thing. You know, it doesn't really matter how mature your systems are unless you get to product market fit. So technical maturity should really be downstream of that. But once you get there, you really need to like have a plan to, to amp the maturity of your systems. And then culture, I think you do design a little more intentionally. And I think at the early stage, it, it almost matters the most. And so I think that's where you are intentional upfront. And, and so mm-hmm. that, that's probably the biggest thing that you design upfront or, or think about upfront. But the rest, I think, is a little bit 2020 uh, vision. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. From phase one to two to three, along with each transition, there are a lot of changes happening. So I'm sure there are a lot of pain internally to drive those changes. So what are the trigger points for thinking about those changes? Can you tell us a little bit more hindsight, what triggers those so that our audience can leverage, oh, those is the, the signs or signals where we to think about the transitioning from one phase to the other? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think when you're going from phase one to phase two, that's a transition where you have reached product market fit. I'd say the the first thing is that the phase one is such a great sweet spot. So try to stay in that as long as possible. And I think Plaid really tried to stay in that as long as possible, where you're really small and lean and communication overhead is low. And so if you can stay in that sweet spot without customers churning, it's really efficient and it's just like such a great place to be. But when you get to product market fit, and I think as an aside, a failure mode is assuming you've gotten a product market fit a little bit too early. So sometimes you think that if you've reached a certain funding milestone or a certain number of customers, that's product market fit. You know you've reached product market fit where there's like 
tons of customer pull and your team really can't keep up with the demand. So you start seeing tons of bugs and feature requests and your backlog is growing and you just can't keep up, right? And to me, that's where we, you get to product market fit. So that, that's one leading indicator is your feature backlog growing. The second is the way we kind of handle that for a really long time is by extreme focus. And so talked about the single backlog, but what the single backlog also means is you're saying no to a lot of high ROI things because they're not the highest ROI. That's fine for a while. It's really great for focus. It keeps your platform really focused as well, but it does start to eat away at your NPS, right? Your customers are getting said no to for things that are really legitimate asks. And that doesn't feel great after a while, right? So that's another indicator is like customer sentiment and NPS. NPS is a very lagging indicator, but you can start to feel that sentiment from customers. And then probably the third one is what I talked about with Dunbar's numbers, just your number of paths it takes to get anything done. And one thing we saw is like, you know, it used to be that an account manager or somebody that's customer facing could just reach out to one person and get an answer about how a product worked or why a certain bug was happening. But after a while, when the complexity of our teams went up, you, you would see people just hopping around Slack saying like, do you own this? No. And then they'd get routed to another team. And so you can kind of see like if somebody's getting routed around and nobody has true ownership of something, that that's another sign that you don't have the right interfaces internally. So we, we were seeing all of that. And I think that's what led us to say like, we need to really spin up teams in order to have like stable interfaces and stable investments so we can say yes more to customers, but also be more efficient about how we route things internally. How did your role evolve through these things? And I think specifically looking for, I guess, what was probably asked of you or how you had to rise to meet the different changing leadership challenges with all of these different phase changes like you probably had to learn a lot, grow a lot. What were some of those inflection points for you and how did that opportunity come to be? Yeah, it's a good question. There's probably another one of these things where you don't realize it's sort of happening in the moment. But I think going back a little bit to my history, I started my career as an engineer at Disney Imagineering. And I think one of the things that I really learned there was Imagineering was a place where you'd hire engineers that sort of were very creative, had to think about product and design and engineering at the same time. And so I got to work with really talented engineers there, but I think it also was a very non-functional place, meaning that there weren't a ton of specific functions to, to handle things like product and design. So it kind of forced you to think about many sides of the end product all at the same time. And so my nature was to kind of think that way as I sort of grew up in my career working in video games and even in, in B2B products was really the end business impact or the end user impact is, is my job and the thing that I have to think about. So even though at Plaid I started in you know 2017 as an eng manager and, and started to you know like work on organizational things, started to really focus on recruiting in the first couple of years, the eventual path took me to thinking about the business as a whole, just because I think I, by nature, kind of looked for what is the biggest problem we needed to solve, whether it was engineering or, or not. So a couple of like personal inflection points. I think one thing that I hadn't really ever done before was start a new office. And second year into Plaid, it was very much like, we need to scale quickly. Can't do it in San Francisco. Let's start a new office. And, and that role was, I'd say, like almost 99% recruiting, 1%, you know, talking to different cities and understanding like which one was going to be the best fit for us. But it's very much not strictly engineering. After that, it was really like, hey, there's a bunch of demand for new products for, for you know, customers really want Plaid to build new things. And it was spinning up a, a couple different new product groups. And 
that was a, a ton of organization, a lot of engineering work, but also thinking about the product side a lot and product strategy. And then more recently, it's like as we split into business units, we, we see a need for our core business to really, you know, continue to strengthen our core products, but also meet the needs of an expanding fintech ecosystem and innovate on things that will take us to the next sort of phase of growth. And so, again, I think having some of the longevity of Plaid and being able to balance engineering and product and go to market, I think that's led me to sort of fit into that role really well. And it's a transition I went through over the last year. I'd say one, one sort of key inflection point or learning I remember a conversation I had with Jean-Denis of sometime last year, I was kind of sitting back and looking at what I was working on. And I made the comment, I was like, I don't think a lot of this is really engineering focused, right? It doesn't seem super relevant to the engineering team. And he kind of just paused and looked at me and was like, that is your job. It doesn't matter if it's engineering or not, you need to fix these problems. And I think it was a mindset shift for me and it was really helpful feedback, but I think it kind of frame that there's a bunch of seams in an organization, doesn't matter whether they're engineering or not, but I really need to kind of look for those seams and those opportunities and make sure they're addressed, whether that's in my job description or not. I, I love the concept of asking the question of what is the biggest problem and all roads essentially lead towards challenges with the business. And then the quote, look for the seams. And I think the seams is a really apt description of some of those opportunities. And going back to starting a new office, what was that like in, in why Salt Lake City and like in that moment? And what'd you learn from that experience? Yeah, it was a really fun and rewarding experience. The, you know, Salt Lake City office today is about 100, 120 people. It's a great office, super passionate, has a really unique and, and they're the super fun group. So, you know, looking back on it, it was a great experience. I think in the moment, what the reason we took it on was we have this part of our business that just needs to scale horizontally really quickly. And that's the integrations with banks. So we covered tens of thousands of banks. And, you know, in 2017, we were looking at like, what does that need to look like in terms of scale? And we really thought for us to succeed, for us to win the market, we probably needed to grow that team to 50 to 100 engineers over the next couple of years. And at that time, we were really just growing the team at like one or two engineers a quarter. The pace of hiring was kind of slow. One, because we were really careful about growing the team. But two, there was a ton of other companies in San Francisco at hyperscale, right? So Uber and Stripe and Airbnb competing against all of those. And, you know, as an early stage startup without a ton of brand recognition, it was kind of hard to grow at the pace we needed. So that led us to think about a bunch of different strategies. You know, if you're going to essentially like 50x your, your hiring speed, you need to think a little bit differently. So we started thinking about, should we offshore? Should we hire a remote team? Should we open another office? Should we move to South Bay? There was a bunch of things we considered. And we landed on wanting to have an, an in-office experience in a different city for a couple different reasons. I think one, one is that for the type of work we do, very high trust, high sensitivity of data, we really wanted people to be in an office. So you could kind of have the right training programs. You could build trust within the team. So that was really important. I think second, you know, we just didn't think we could do it at scale in San Francisco. I think all the challenges I mentioned, but we thought there's pockets of cities where Platt is a really compelling sort of story. It's like, you know, Bay Area startup, get to work with on a really important mission. And we thought that might be an attractive kind of pitch for candidates in certain markets. And so the way we kind of tested that is like, we, you know, picked a few markets. Our criteria, we, we, we wanted something that fit culturally with Platt. And one of those things was like, we like to be builders. And so we didn't want to go into a city that we considered finished. We really wanted to be part of a growing 
tech city. And I think that kind of ruled out cities like Austin or Seattle. I think Denver at that time was starting to feel like more of a finished product. And, and so we started looking at more at like cities like Salt Lake City, Boise, even LA, I think as a tech city is a little bit up and coming. But we also wanted a city to be close enough to foster great connections and have people be able to make day trips really easily, sort of back and forth. And so that led us to, you know, a handful of cities close to the West Coast. And then really is like testing the market, just like you would with an MVP. We sent out a bunch of reach outs, had a bunch of early calls with candidates and, and got to test market demand. And so we had a bunch of filters and, and Salt Lake City ended up winning for a few reasons. I think one, you know, amazing city, the airport's super close to downtown. It's, it's, <laughs> it's um, just such a beautiful city. And so a lot of our team already really loved going out there. I personally uh, was part of leading the search and I'm from Salt Lake City. So I will admit there is maybe like 5% of just my bias coming in. But I think ultimately it was really like, what's the best match for our culture and will help the business scale. And, and that's what led us to Salt Lake City. Come I was going to say the, the proxy is the tech ecosystem and how that's evolving or like the state of maturity of the tech ecosystem is like a proxy for the, the culture that you're looking for. That to me, I'm like, that's genius. That's amazing. So I just, I thought that was really great. The analogy of testing the market like an MVP. I'm, I'm also going to Salt Lake City next week. So there's a little bit of my bias in there. I was like, I'm very big on the Mountain West right now as an emerging tech scene, Boise, Salt Lake City. So I think that's great. Yeah, it's a great ecosystem. It's definitely pumped out a bunch of unicorns, but it's very much a growing ecosystem. And, and I, we've had a chance to grow along with it. And it's been super rewarding. Creating your office was a really great way to boost the girls of engineering team in old days, but now everyone's remote. So what's the new version of that? Such a hard question, Jerry. So yeah, we learned a lot with opening a new office. I think to me, I kind of think about it as like building communities within your organization. And, and it's not something we've nailed by any means, but I think as the pandemic went on, you know, Plaid has grown probably by 60% since the pandemic. So there's more new people that started remote than there there were previous previously. So online community is really important. And I think we're still figuring out our long-term structure, right? Like how many people go back to offices, how many people will stay remote. But I think one thing we saw in Pulse surveys over the last year was that everybody was sort of lacking the sense of second community. I think everybody said, hey, I love my team. I think I've really been able to bond with my team, but I don't have the sense of like, what is my second community at Plaid? And so I, th I think we've really started to look at our business units in, in this new phase three as that second community. And it used to be engineering, but even now engineering is too large to, to be that second community. So we've been really intentional about that. I think we try to use our offsite budgets liberally. Lots of people on the teams from sort of the bottom up are creating events and different ways to sort of mix virtual and, and in-person events. And you know, it's really important to everybody. I don't think there's like, one right or wrong way to do it. But I think this year we've been really intentional about giving people support to do that through our workplace experience team and, and just really supporting that as managers. But yeah, it's really important and I'm super focused on community this year. I love the concept of finding the second community for, uh, for a team. And I mean, I think that's a trend that, that Jerry and I really tapped into too. I believe that community is almost going to become like a non-negotiable for building an attractive workplace, it's going to become an expectation for what people are looking for with work. I was reading this article, it was like, it was describing two forking realities, one where work becomes a trade off where you're just trading your time for the, the paycheck, or it's going to become much more integrated and holistic. I'm more for the 
holistic, integrated, you're creating a sense of community more so because that's an environment that is much more fun to be spending the time, your time, talents and gifts and aligning the impact for things that help make the world a little bit better. So I think the idea of like, how can you shape and form those senses of identity or connection or community within your company? I think it's really elegant. Yeah, a huge plus one. I think some of the best moments of my career were you're just working with the same people for years and years. And I think the way you do that is really by feeling like you have friendships, authentic friendships at work. And so really important to me. And I think that's hard to do remote, but it's not impossible. So definitely something super, super passionate about this year. Earlier when talking about the, the triggering point, transitioning from one phase to the next, you answer for the first one was really good. I feel indicator you, you, you should look for to make, make that transition. What is the indicators for the second transition from phase two to phase three? Yeah, so the, the phase two to phase three transition. So in phase two, we had moved to teams. And a lot of that was because we didn't have consistent ownership over products. So we moved to mission-based team models which kind of solves some of the problems of long-term ownership, stable interfaces, and teams being able to balance feature development versus long-term foundations. But, but there's still some challenges with this model. And so some of the challenges, ecosystem is developing really quickly. So there's going to be inbound needs that don't clearly map to any of the existing teams. And now that you're in this team-based structure, you're starting to sort of optimize your roadmaps locally within the missions of your teams. But then you see these cross-cutting needs or these needs that aren't covered. So inevitably, you end up layering on this system of global prioritization on top of the local prioritization. And one of the failure modes that we kind of started seeing over and over is we get through quarterly planning, and then a need would kind of come in that was cross-cutting. And we inevitably had to ask teams to deprioritize stuff on their roadmap to fund these projects. Plaid is very good about thinking about global impact, so it wasn't hard to do, but what it means is that it stopped teams from making really long-term investments in foundations or taking on longer-term big bets that would span multiple quarters because this was sort of happening every quarter. And then because this is happening, it still requires high coordination costs, right? Like many teams have to talk, you have to get all the managers in a room and make some of these trade-offs. And so you kind of back to the point where like, your coordination costs are, are almost exponential with your number of teams. So then you start to see velocity slowing down because of these bottlenecks and the coordination costs to resolve these bottlenecks is super costly. So some of the like measurable things you might see where you're, you're like, okay, I think we're clearly on track to go to the next phase is how many products require changes to the same underlying systems and how many conversations does that take to resolve many teams building the same types of logic. So we started to run into cases as we got to 20 or 30 teams where some of the communication wasn't scaling and many teams are thinking about, oh, we need to add text messaging infrastructure. There's no platform to do that. Let me just build this for my feature. And then, you know, I think the velocity angle, are we starting to realize impact of projects too slowly? So if you kind of look back at your roadmap deliverables over the trailing 12 months, like, do you feel like you shipped impact to customers as quickly as you wanted? And sometimes in, in the moment when you're going through OKRs, it feels like you're checking off OKRs, but really it's, do the customers feel the results of the, that work? And then, you know, I think we also did a ton of pulse surveying and try to get qualitative data on like, how do engineers feel about tech strategy and vision and ability to move quickly? And, you know, as you start seeing those numbers, start to go down over time, like that starts to lead you to saying like, okay, we need to invest more in sort of stable foundations and have clear like ownership boundaries with business units. And that, that's what led us to partially to, to phase three. Wow. 
Uh, what a good framework to think about. And I think that kind of answered the question that I was going to ask, which was around like how far you can go before some of the operations break down. And so I think looking at how you were organizing more of the like the team oriented structure, like how far you could push that before you needed to start to structure more into to business unit organization. Is there anything that else you would add around like how far you could push some of the models? We talked about like pushing the the phase one model as far as you can, like keeping the organization really flat. I think you, you can push it fairly far. I think at the time where you feel like this is getting painful, generally what we found is like you could still do that for another six months, right? If there's enough <laughs> value that you're delivering to customers, everyone can live through a little bit of pain. It's not great, but if you're still able to keep your sort of core commitments and core requirements, but you're not shipping maybe the one or two like topmost asks, like generally we found we, we could push that a little bit far and it helped keep us really focused on quality and adding bank coverage. On phase two, I think... We, we probably got this a little bit wrong, I would say. I think we maybe pushed it slightly too far where one big thing, we, we had a big initiative to say, okay, velocity is decreasing. We know this from our pulse surveys. Let's try to increase velocity, right? And so we had a big initiative around that in the company. And we trying to do that within the constraints of our team system, we found that to be really hard. So we ended up going in kind of surgically and saying like, oh, let's look at like our delivery speed. Let's look at our CICD pipeline. Let's look at like how we're interfacing with different functions and different teams and make optimizations there. At the end of the day, it didn't make a huge difference in terms of velocity just because we were organized wrong, right? Teams still had a ton of dependencies. We didn't have the right platforms in place to allow teams to sort of self-serve support. And so I think at that point, we probably knew we were six to 12 months too late in making that change and making those investments. And so I'd say we you know, took our lessons of pushing the boundaries as, as long as we could, probably a little bit too far. One element I wanted to ask about a little bit more is the culture. And so one of the things that we've talked about briefly was like at certain points, there's certain cultural elements you grow out of, which I thought was a really interesting distinction because when you think about like how an organization evolves, I don't think I spent a lot of time thinking about what parts of our culture do we discontinue as we move on to a new model. And so can you share a little bit more about, about how you thought about that through some of these phase changes? Or I guess, what parts of culture did you quote unquote, grow out of at, at some of these different phases? Yeah, so I think early on, the team kind of set the culture and, and some of the things that emerged in those early days were an impact mindset. You know, I don't think we really called it impact in 2012, 2013. But it was very much like, what's the next big hurdle? What's the next big problem we have to solve? But very, being very impact-minded. Transparency was really big. So the team and founders cared a lot about sharing financial numbers very openly, customer conversations, recruiting conversations. We, we had these big email aliases where everything would be BCC'd so you could really see what was going on across the company if you're interested. Trust building was really important. We really fostered one-on-one -on -one trust building. So tons of one-on-ones, things we called playerings, where we'd randomly match two people up in Slack and they would get coffee. We did that for years and years. And then bottom-up culture, bottom-up decision-making, super important, easy to do when you're small, but really tons of our roadmap comes from the team itself, given that they have all this context and they built up trust and, and have access to a lot of information. And then humility, I think that was another big thing is, you know, I think our CEO sets a lot of the tone here, but he, I remember this in my interview, he said, I don't want to be famous. I want our customers to be famous. And that really resonated with me. And I think that really was part of the early culture. And so we didn't, you know, obviously think about a lot of these things up front as things that we wanted to instill, but it was really due to the actions of the team. 
I'd say a lot of these things as the company scales are still important, right? Like transparency is always going to be really important. Trust building is always going to be really important. But some of the things have had to be modified a little bit. So the impact mindset was one of the things that has changed and morphed a little bit. So early on, we used to have this value that kind of embodied this impact mindset called ship the MVP. And ship the MVP really meant like ship value to customers quickly and then iterate with them to perfect the product. But over time, what it started to be as we started to scale was really like cut corners to to get your product out to market faster. And it's very nuanced why those things are different. But, you know, as the team scales and you can't really have everybody know sort of everybody anymore, like we started to see that drift a little bit where the cutting of the corners really was like done in ways sometimes that were unsustainable. And so we actually over time sort of deprecated that value and did it in favor of make it better or technical craft. These are two values we kind of use now. And those both sort of speak a little bit to technical craftsmanship and we still get some of the same value and same of the same impact mindset, but you might say like technical craftsmanship, that actually means you can move faster by cutting corners, but doing it in the right way so it's easy to unwind later. But you can also move slower and think on longer timeframes and, and think about velocity gains in aggregate over many years. So we've had to kind of reframe that value to, to really match the needs of our business and the ecosystem as we move forward. I wanted to ask you one, one more question about your kind of final thoughts or reflections on your experience navigating all of these sort of evolutions within the organization. So you've laid out, I think, some really important pivotal moments for the company. And I just really have appreciated all of the different ways that you've been able to reveal your thought process or the dynamics or the considerations that one could have when thinking about different approaches at sort of these different spaces. When you think about your own career, and in how your roles evolved and how you've grown as a leader through all of these different phases. Are there any final thoughts or insights or advice that you would share with our community who are in a place where they may be in the same situation where their role could evolve extensively through all these different phases of a company? Any thoughts on navigating or growing internally with the company through phases like this? I think the advice I give folks on my team that are kind of going through this is really be intentional about your time. And I think knowing where you need to like scale yourself out of a job, like sort of a cliche thing, but I think it, it is really important because if you sit back and look at things that you do well and then areas you need to grow, you're naturally going to tend towards the things you do well. And so one thing I've really had to challenge myself with is if there's things that I've done in, in the past and other people may find those as challenges, I, I really need to find ways to hand those off in order to like free me up to work on something new and, and to stretch myself. And so I've kind of, had to check myself many times and go through periods of self-reflection where I'm just like, okay, am I doing the same thing because it's easier or that's actually what's needed for the organization? Or are there people that, you know, could really grow from those challenges as well? And so doing that at sort of multiple levels of the company, I think is really important over time. And I think maybe the one thing that I always think about is just do one thing a day that kind of scares myself, you know, mm -hmm. scares scares me. And, and I think that really helps stretch and grow me in, in ways that I need. And so really sort of taking some time to, to think about that and challenge myself has been a huge, huge accelerant to my career. I really resonate with the do one thing a day that scares you. I have written on, uh, let's show it to you now real quick. I have a, a couple like questions that I ask myself. And one of them is, what have you done today 
that scares you or was a risk like you I, I feel like I I feel like I'm most alive or at my best when I've done one thing and usually this I, I kind of couch it under like emotional risk and so like having a conversation that maybe I'm scared to have because it requires like telling somebody important to you that like you're mad at them or whatever so I really resonate with that that last point that's awesome I love that I need to I need to have a little whiteboard on my desk as well <laughs> Awesome. Samir, we've got a couple rapid fire questions if you still have a few moments to jump in. Of course, yeah. Okay, perfect. So to get into rapid fire questions, the first one, what are you reading or listening to right now? So we just had a kid, uh, so I have a nine-month-old, so a lot of my leisure reading has been replaced by reading him books. So I'd say Llama, Mad at Mama. It's a fascinating tale of a llama that is like rudely interrupted from his play session to go grocery shopping with his mom. It's fascinating. I <laughs> highly recommend it. I love that so much. This is the first children's book recommendation on the podcast. This is a historical moment. Oh, wow. um, so thank you for bringing that in for us. Question number two, what tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? Yeah, Atomic Habits has had a pretty big impact. The James Clear book, and I think in particular, the habit stacking method has had a ton of impact. Earlier last year, I started running and stacking that as a habit with some of my morning habits and had a big impact on my health and, and just sort of mental freshness at work. And so that, that's had a big uh, impact on me. That's a that's a big favorite book of, of Jerry and I's. Also on the whiteboard are the four laws of behavior change. And so I'm like constantly just looking at that anytime because Jerry and I do like a deep weekly debrief where we talk about what can we do to improve? And it's like, all right, well, how do I make it obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying? I love the habit stacking. That's been, I've had a lot of impact with that as well. James Clear, Atomic Habits, that's a good one. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I mentioned I worked in gaming earlier. I, I worked on massively multiplayer games for kids. And, and so from that time, I think I've always been really interested in how communities form around uh, different online subject matters. I don't know if it's mainstream or not, but I think DAOs to me are really interesting. So the decentralized autonomous organizations, I don't think it's really hit mainstream yet until it has a bunch of UX built on top of it. But Really excited to see how that can enable online communities and even offline communities. So, so it's something I'm definitely keeping my eye on. What's your favorite or most powerful question to ask or be asked? Anytime somebody brings up a problem, I always like to ask them, like, what did they say when you gave them that feedback? I think it's really important to drive a feedback culture. And I think making it sort of a baseline that you would give somebody feedback directly versus like bubbling it up, I think is, is really important. And I like to hear that myself because sometimes I, I need to be checked. That, that feels like a such an invisible, great move to cultivate like that type of behavior that you want in your teams. <laughs> I love that. Final question, Samir. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's resonating with you right now? Yeah, so th this is one that my wife put on the wall at our wedding, but really resonates with both, both of us is laughter is the shortest distance between two people and the author of that is Victor Borg. But I think it's so true. I think to me, it's just every time there's a tense situation, I think connecting on a sort of a, a humorous level just cuts through that very quickly. And you know, I think it's something we look for in friends and coworkers. And I think it's just such a great way to connect with people. That's great. As uh, I'm wedding planning right now. And so that one particularly hits a, in a, a really resonant way. You're welcome to, to steal that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Samir, just to, to wrap this up, thank you so much for helping reveal two parallel stories that could be both complex, your career evolution and how Plaid's evolved as an organization. And just really appreciate the, the thoughtfulness and the clarity that you provided around some of these really important inflection points. And I think folks are really going to benefit from how to factor decisions and consider a lot of different things there. So thank you. 
Thank you too. It's been a ton of fun and, and thanks for all you do for the engineering leadership community. It's been awesome. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with Samir Naik. Samir broke down Plaid's growth into three different phases. Phase one was about getting to product market fit. Phase two was about the initial scale up where you're starting to experience more customer pull. Phase three was about scaling multiple independent business lines, growing at a high velocity, all of them requiring greater investment into your platform. Phase one had small teams organized around projects. It wasn't really functionally driven and culture alignment here was most heavily weighted. Phase two, you still have a single product, but teams no longer have complete context. And this is where Plaid started introducing more product oriented teams with longer running missions. Other functions were growing alongside as well, like design and sales to meet the expanding customer needs. And phase three, Plaid started adding and operating a lot more business units. Their customers had more mature needs requiring multi-year thinking for the product. All of this required heavier investment in the platform and internal infrastructure. Some signs indicating these different phase changes. You know you're at product market fit when you have tons of customer pull and your team can't quite keep up with demand. An indicator here is your feature backlog growing, a lagging indicator to look at. Are you having to say no to a lot of the inbound requests that are coming in? And is that impacting customer sentiment and NPS? Also look for if ownership is unclear. If people are hopping around Slack with questions, that might be another sign. For later phases, look for how many products require changes to the same underlying systems, and then how many conversations it took to resolve those challenges. Review your past roadmap. Did you ship impact to your customers as fast as you wanted to when you're looking back at the last 12 months? And then you can also get internal qualitative feedback from your engineering team on how they feel about tech strategy, vision, and speed. Throughout all of this, Samir was able to evolve his career with Plaid by asking the key question, what is the biggest problem we need to solve? This led to answers like when Plaid needed to scale up quickly, that meant opening up a new office in another city, or the need to spin up new product groups or how they're now focused on building out different business units. So if you're looking to evolve your role through different phases of the company, remember that on the quest to find the biggest problems at the company, all roads eventually lead to challenges with the business. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.